Amen. Well, you know I want to tell you something, right? <laughs> I, I was led of the Spirit in the wilderness again. <laughs> and it's good to know the Bible, right? Because the people that we were with, one suggestion was to climb up on this rock. And I said, okay, I can climb up on the rock. You should stand on the rock, right? So I climbed up on the rock. I felt like that was from the Lord. But then they asked me to swing out on this vine. I said, Satan, get ye behind me. <laughs> Amen. Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much, so much for the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that's available in your spirit. We thank you for his presence in and throughout us and upon us. Bless the pastor in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, how many of you this week have noticed selfies everywhere you go? You just see selfies, right? People started texting me selfies this week. If, if you weren't here last week, none of what I'm saying right now makes sense. But if you were here last week, last week you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was in 201 last week teaching the class. I feel my phone buzz in my pocket, pull it out. It's my wife sending me a selfie. Um, if, if it makes no sense what I'm saying... Go onto our website, listen to Joyride Part 2 last week, and you'll totally understand what I'm talking about. We're, we're actually going through a, a brief letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that he had planted 10 years earlier. And it's just a short little letter. And if you remember, um, the, the writer of the letter, Paul, was not always a Christian. Uh, in fact, for, for many, many years, Paul was not even neutral with respect to Christianity. He was anti-Christian. He was virulently and violently opposed to people that were Christians. And so he went about uh, trying to, to, to imprison them, trying to jail them, having them killed. In fact, one of the very first um, Christian martyrs was killed while Paul was standing you know, and watching. But, but Paul experienced a radical transformation uh, in his life, he experienced a conversion. He experienced a, a deep and powerful sense of God's love and God's grace. And this transformed him. Um, and he then spent the rest of his life preaching and teaching and writing letters of encouragement and strength um, to the people who would become Christians. Um, and as a result of his faithful work as a Christian, he became uh, the most popular person in all of Israel was given a herd of camels, a large palace, and bags upon bags of gold. Right. Okay. So I was just seeing if you're listening. Okay. Are you fine? He was not given any of that. Uh, what he was given um, for, for preaching the gospel uh, was multiple stents in prison. He was flogged repeatedly, left for dead five times Five times he was scourged, scourged with the, the 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with wooden rods. One time he was stoned, and that, that was with stones, um, not the other kind. Uh, he, he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was constantly on the move. He tells us that he was, danger, he was in danger from rivers. He was in danger from thieves. He was in danger because some of his own brothers in the faith wanted him dead. He was in danger because some Gentiles who didn't like Jews wanted him dead. He was in danger because of false believers that wanted him dead. Um, he spent days without food. He spent nights without sleep. 
he felt immense pressure to encourage and strengthen the churches that he had planted, uh, and he also struggled with his own personal sins and temptations. Nevertheless, while sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a, a, a Roman guard, awaiting possible execution, Paul sits down and writes a letter, and the first line of the third chapter that we're going to go through today says, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This letter that he wrote in these most dire of circumstances, these most bleak, the most bleak situation imaginable, this letter is packed with joy. 16 times in the letter, Paul references joy. Eight of the times, he's talking about his own joy. Eight of the times, he's talking about your joy and my joy. Five of the times in the letter, he's directing us, he's commanding us to rejoice. He's saying, rejoice. And so the obvious question arises for us, Paul, how could, how could you be rejoicing in that situation, in, in those circumstances? And how can you, Paul, expect us to maintain this impervious sense of joy that you're talking about in our, in our situation, in our circumstances, right? I mean, we're not suffering, scourging, and, you know, beaten with wooden rods and stonings and imprisonments, but we all have life situations that don't necessarily evoke joy in our life, right? Some of us are struggling uh, even this week with financial problems, and you're not quite sure how you're going to you know, work it out and pull out of it. Some of you are struggling in relationship problems, and it may be that you want to be in a relationship and you're not in one. Or it may be that you're in one and you don't want to be in that relationship, right? Relationship problems or school problems. There's a bunch of people I know in this congregation right now that are prepping for the MCAT and the LSAT and the bar exam. And it's like, that's, that doesn't, those moments in your life, those don't evoke great joy, Right? Some of us may be struggling with, um, you know, something at work. Your boss is a jerk. The atmosphere is toxic. You don't want to be there. You don't know how to get out of it, right? Or maybe you wish you had a toxic boss because you just got fired and you're not sure or you laid off and you're not sure how you're going to land. And if, if our personal circumstances are, are not in bad shape right now, now, all we have to do is open the paper, you know, go online. We see that a, Ma- a Malaysian airliner has gone down over eastern Ukraine, was shot out of the sky, right? We know that, 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 that uh, Hamas and Israel are, are engaged in a bloody battle over the Gaza Strip. Uh, ISIS is moving through Iraq and Syria. I mean, you just, just open your eyes a little bit and you see that there are circumstances and situations in life that don't necessarily evoke what we would normally think of as joy, right? And yet Paul continues to direct us Rejoice. Rejoice. So we're going to go through the third chapter of this, uh, of this book today. And what we're going to pull out of it, there are two big major truths, and then there are three applications. So big, two big truths about joy and, and three applications that I want to um, unpack. And if you haven't been a part of this series, let me just thumbnail quickly uh, summarize a little bit of what we've talked about just so we're all on the same page. First thing is that 
joy and happiness are not the same thing. So when we're talking about joy, we're not talking about happiness. Happiness is good, but they're not the same thing. Happiness is a transient emotional state. Joy is a persistent spiritual condition. So what's the distinction there? The distinction is happiness is contingent upon your circumstances. You have a good circumstance, you have a good thought about that circumstance, and then you have a happy emotion about that circumstance. Um, Joy is something that is more persistent. Happiness comes and goes, like momentarily. It can be there and it can be gone. I'll give you an example. This uh, last Sunday, uh, you know, my my mother-in-law and father-in-law are in town, and last Sunday, my father-in-law and I had pre-planned that we're going to take Jameson and Lincoln on a camping trip. We're going to pack up the car, and we're going to go camping, and we're going to have a blast. And after church, my wife says, hey, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a 70% chance of severe thunderstorms. And I said, um, so that means there's a 30% chance of uh, sunny skies? She's like, I really don't think you guys should go on this camping trip. And she was giving me all of the reasons why we shouldn't go. But sometimes, you know, I don't know if you experienced this. Sometimes guys just dig in their heels. I was just like, hey, man, we said we're going camping. We're going camping. Don't try to talk me out of it. And I was happy about that decision. Phil and I packed up the car, got the tent, got the sleeping bags, got the Coleman stove, got the little lantern, threw the boys in the car, got some granola bars. We're cruising down the 55. We're having a blast. We're singing. We're telling jokes. You know, we're saying things that we're not allowed to say in front of mom and all that kind of stuff. We're having a good time. And, uh, and you know, we see some storm clouds over there. But we're saying, hey, you know, we, you know maybe those are just going to pass on by, right? So we get down to Washington State Park. We're happy. We build a campfire. We throw up the tent. Uh, I've, got the, I've got the logs burning. Uh, and we're just having a blast, right? Here's a picture of us having fun at our campsite right there. There's the boys. Look at that smile. I mean, that's like, he's happy, right? We're hanging out by the campfire. Suddenly, we start to feel a little pitter-patter of rain. Just a pitter-patter. Not, nothing big. We're like, you know what? That's, that's not going to drive away our happiness. Let's just head on into the tent. You know, we've been sitting out here long enough. Head on into the tent. Let's take a little, take a little snooze. So we all go in the tent. We lie down. Uh, the boys fell sound asleep. I mean, they zonked out. And Phil is falling asleep over there, my father-in-law. And I'm just laying there, you know, listening to the light drizzle on top on the roof of the, rent tr- the tent. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm, this is good, man. My wife she does not know what she's talking about. I'm so happy right now. Uh, then I fell asleep. And it must have been, I don't know, 15 minutes later. I am awoken to a sound not dissimilar from this and I wake up and there is lightning and there is thunder and the tent is shaking and the wind is blowing and there is a a, a downpour of rain that's not only coming down onto the tent but it's flowing into the tent through the front door at one point I, I look over I see Phil's sandals like floating past me and it's like holy smokes what is going on here somehow the boys are still asleep you know they're sort of like like on a on a water raft and it was nuts and and it's and, and it's lightning and i told phil i go man we got to get out of here i actually pulled out my phone and i googled tent camp tent camping in a thunderstorm and and basically all the google responses said get out now 
So it's midnight. We grab the boys. We get in the car. We abandon our camp. We drive the hour and a half back home. It's 1.30 in the morning. We, you know, we groggily get into bed. The next morning, we have to drive the hour and a half back. Unfortunately, I didn't get a picture of our campsite, that, you know, but it looked sort of like this when we got back there the next day. That's not, that's not really it, but that's kind of what it looked like. I got to tell you, when you're looking at that, you're not feeling happy anymore, right? Happiness just is transient. It flows in, it flows out. Circumstance good, happy. Circumstance bad, not happy. But we're not talking about happiness today. We're talking about joy, and specifically, we're talking about the joy of the Lord. And, and the joy of the Lord for our purposes, as we're talking about it, is a deep and persistent sense of hope and confidence that God is with us despite our current circumstances. I'll add this to to the tent story. When I had to come home and admit what had happened, I think my wife did have a little twinge of happiness. I detected a little happiness in the I told you so. Um, but but this, this persistent sense of abiding joy is what Paul is calling us to, the Bible is calling us to, Jesus throughout the Gospels is calling us to. Um, and so we want to just unpack what that means. And, and chapter 3 actually really gives us some good insight. So let's dive into um, the first verse. Paul says, My brothers and sisters... Rejoice in the Lord. He said, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. That, that word safeguard, the Greek word for that is asphalē, which is the word we get asphalt. He's basically saying, I want you to, to, to rejoice. And I'll tell you again to rejoice, right? Because doing so provides a safeguard for you. You can ground yourself on this principle. You can, this will keep you from stumbling. This will keep you from falling. You ground yourself in the joy of the Lord. Um, okay, so two major themes that come out of this. Um, the first one is that joy, as described by Paul, is a choice. It's a choice. And we know that because five times in the letter we're told to rejoice. It's an imperative sentence. It's not, hey, guys, I would, I would like for you to possibly consider perhaps rejoicing. It's not the way he says it. It's, it's, he says, I want you to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. We know that if we're commanded to do something, we have a loving father. He's not going to command us to do something that we can't do, right? As, as a dad, if I told my boys to go into the house and the house was locked and I kept the key in my pocket, I would be a cruel father, right? But, but, but Paul is telling us to rejoice. And so the question that we have to ask is how? How do we do it? Here's the secret to what Paul is saying. And you may have missed it when we first read it, so I'm going to focus on it just for a few minutes right here. He doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. What does that mean? Um, Everybody say this. Sinsipalum dulcificum. That's good. I practiced all week, so I have a little leg up on you guys. Um, Okay, so, so, so now just say miracle fruit miracle fruit. Okay. Since a palum dulcificum or miracle fruit is a little red berry from West Africa. And when you eat this berry, 
anything that you eat after you eat this berry tastes absolutely sweet and delicious. Has anybody ever heard of this? Okay, good. Ryan, um, are you eating miracle berries? Okay. That's how you stay in good shape, right? You eat a miracle berry, then you just eat a load of spinach. And then, um, but but the, way, the way this berry works is it's got a chemical in it. And it's people in, in West Africa have been eating this for, for centuries. It's got a chemical in it, and the chemical is called miraculin. That's the truth. That's really what it's called. And what this chemical does is when you eat this berry, miraculin actually binds to the sweet receptors, the taste buds on your tongue, and so that anything that you put in your mouth after you eat the berry tastes delicious. So you can eat a bite of this berry and then drink a shot of Tabasco sauce, and it's going to taste like maple syrup going down your throat. You can eat, you can eat a raw onion after eating one of these berries, and it will taste like a sweet Georgia peach. Okay? You, can, you can eat raw oysters, and it's going to taste like hubba bubba if you eat just the berry before that. Um, you can, you can actually have a piece of dry, moldy rye bread, and it's going to taste like a glazed donut going down the throat. A- in fact, there are people now in New York and, and Los Angeles who have discovered this, the properties of this berry, and now they're having what they call taste-tripping parties. So they will have, you know, they'll, they'll have people over, they'll eat one of these berries, and then they will eat the most pungent, disgusting, gross, repugnant, offensive foods that they can think of, and then see how the berry transforms their experience of eating that food. You're going, all right, where are we going with the, with the miracle berry? What the Apostle Paul is saying when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying that if you have truly tasted of, if you have truly experienced the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption and the acceptance of Jesus, if you've had that experience in your life, any other disgusting, repugnant, repulsive circumstance that arises cannot drown out the sweetness of what you have experienced if you will focus not on the experience but on the Lord. Rejoicing in Him, not in the experience. He's saying if you have have tasted of Christ's love, nothing can take that sweet taste out of your mouth. Christians know that we believe that all things work together for our good. All things. Now, it doesn't mean that all things are good, right? We do not have a Pollyanna view of the world. We understand that there are things that are bad, right? Suffering and persecution and isolation and loneliness and sickness and disease and racism and bigotry and all that stuff, that's bad, We know that's bad. We've experienced that, right? And yet, the Bible says that God makes all things work together for the good of those that love him. So once we have tasted of the miracle berry of Christ's love in our life, the circumstances don't deter us from being able to continue to rejoice. You see, we're not rejoicing because of our situation, We're rejoicing because of our status in Jesus, right? We're not rejoicing because of our current circumstances. We're rejoicing because of our eternal condition as a beloved child of the Lord. We're not rejoicing because of our earthly problems. We're rejoicing because of our heavenly position 
in God, in Christ, through faith. Pain doesn't override that. Grief does not override that. Sorrow does not override that. Despondency does not override that. Despair does not override that. Nothing can override the joy of knowing. If you, if you truly understand and truly grasp what Paul is saying, nothing can override the joy of being in Christ and having his forgiveness and his love and his acceptance surround you. Um, and this leads to the second big truth about joy in this chapter, and that is that joy grows from your relationship, not from your resume. Grows from your relationship, not from your resume. How many of you have updated or edited or deleted or submitted or withdrawn your resume in the last year somewhere around here? Lots of folks, right? Some of you are like uh, my bosses here. In here. I'm not going to raise my hand. Um, when I was in, in law school, there was a team of people whose job it was to reconfigure your, your resume to make you look better than you actually looked, right? And I remember taking my, you know, my resume to the career placement office, handed it to the career placement officer. She looked at it. Uh, she said, let me, take, let me take this with me. I'm going to make some revisions, and, and then I'll give it back. And she took some notes, and we had a little interview. And then she gave me my resume back, you know, a week or so later. And I looked at it, and I was like, wow, based on this resume, I'm, I've, I'm a, I'll hire this guy. Right. Like I'm, I'm impressed, you know, because she had gone and she had she didn't pad it. OK. You know, it was all true. But she had sort of taken out the things that didn't accentuate the positive, you know, and, and she she put in things that made that made me look better. And, and that's what we do in life. Right. All of us, whether we're talking about a real resume or not, even when we're little kids, we are desperate to be loved and accepted and respected. And so whatever thing we think we have that will evoke those kinds of responses from other people, we lead with that. We put that out there and we want other people to accept us based upon ourself, right? I want to be loved. So I'm going to tell you that I'm smart or I'm, you know, good looking or I've got money or status or whatever it is. Um, I'm funny or whatever, whatever your thing is, you're going to lead with that to try to get people to like you. And sometimes we let that bleed over into our faith. Um, now, not all people do a great job on, on, on the resume piece. So I'm going to read you a few. I, we found some, some resume blunders that I'm going to show you. I would recommend that you don't put these in your resume. Um, these, these folks did not have... Um, a career placement office that was reviewing their resume for them. I'll just give you a few because I think you'll, you'll enjoy these. Um, number one, 10 things you can go to that next slide to not put on your resume. Employment gaps, it said. Career break in 1999 to renovate my horse. Um, yeah, spell check. Well, actually, spell check wouldn't have caught that. Number two, skills. The guy wrote strong work ethic, attention to detail, Team player, self-motivated, attention to detail. <laughs> I love that one. Number three says, why interested in position? To keep my parole officer from putting back me in jail. So much wrong with that one. There's just so much wrong. Additional honors. Number four, additional honors. Finished eighth in my class of ten. It's like, you know what? Just leave that one off. It's like, it's cool, but just leave that off. Um, 
number five, other information you would like us to know. It's best for employers that I not work with people. <laughs> number six, marital status. They said often. Children, various. <laughs> number seven, reason, reason for leaving prior job. I thought the world was coming to an end. All right. Number eight, salary requirements. The higher, the better. I mean, just being honest, right? I like this one. Languages, speak English and spinach. And the last one, I like this. Qualifications, twin sister has accounting degree. Oh, great. All right, so aside from these examples, most of us try to put our best foot forward, right? Um, we try to be liked, we try to be loved, we try to be accepted by, by showing off who we are, by our own accomplishments, our own accolades. Um, and one of the problems that the church in Philippi was facing, in fact, the major problem that they were facing is that there were, there were teachers, unauthorized teachers, that were coming to Philippi and they were telling the Philippians that they needed to essentially become Jewish before they became Christian. So they were saying, you need to, A, become circumcised according to Jewish custom, and then you need to adhere to all of the dietary and all of the rituals and all of the uh, rules and regulations that are required under Mosaic law before you can get into the good graces of God. And they were coming and they were basically intimidating these Christians by imposing all of these rules and restrictions on them and, and, and requiring more of them than what than what Jesus was requiring. Uh, Paul was saying, you know, this is about a relationship, not about the resume. And these guys were coming and saying, look, you need to bone up your spiritual resume before you can get in good with God. Remember, we studied this in, in Acts. And they had a Jerusalem council and, and, and the apostles and the elders and Peter and everybody was there. And they, and they said, look, this is a matter of by grace through faith in Jesus Christ don't try to work your way into this. Don't try, to, don't try to win God's favor by submitting your resume of, you know, of your spiritual accomplishments. Um, and, and this teaching, nothing else in Scripture ticks off the Apostle Paul like this teaching. He, he reserves, I won't even get into what he says in Galatians, but at some point we'll get into that. He reserves the most, like, almost vulgar language to attack the people who are imposing these restrictions upon these new believers. He's brought them gently into the faith, and now these guys from Jerusalem are coming down and saying, you got to do A, B, C, D, E, and F just to get into God's good favor. So in, in verse 2, he writes, Watch out for those dogs, he says. He calls them dogs. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to their requirement that they become, that they become circumcised. For it is we who are the circumcision, he says, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and, put who, and who put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, don't listen to these guys who are trying to steal your joy by imposing a, a list of rules and restrictions on you so that you can get into God's good favor. They've got it completely wrong, right? We don't obey God so that he loves us, Right? He loves us, and out of the, the, the joy and the gratitude of that, we serve and obey him with everything we've got. It's just, it's a different model, 
right? We don't try to please God. We don't try to earn his favor because nothing that we can do is going to impress him, right? It's the gospel says, no, I'm doing this for you. Now, out of your love for me and gratitude, do these things. But it's a complete reversal of what they were teaching. The reason he calls them dogs is that he's using a little bit of a wordplay because the, the, uh, um, some of the religious elites of that time, they would be very pompous and arrogant and had this attitude towards Gentiles. In fact, they would refer to them as dogs, Gentile dogs. And so basically what Paul is saying is if you are trying to oppress Christians and keep them down, you are the dogs and we are the circumcision. He's just flipping everything on its head. Um, and these are, not, these are not cute, fluffy puppies that he has in mind. These are scavenging, you know, uh, wild, mangy dogs. Um, and then he says, if these guys, these Judaizers who are coming in and trying to impose all this stuff on you, if they want to have this kind of a contest, if you want to compare resumes, let's go for it, right? Because I can play that game. And he goes into verse 4. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he just lists his resume, bullet point resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. That means every Jewish boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. What he's saying is, my parents, not only me, but my parents were observant and pious Jews. Of the people of Israel, he's saying, I'm not a convert. I was born into this. I was chosen for this. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the most prominent, important tribes. The first king of Israel, Saul, came out of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, this Saul, this Paul, was named after him. So he's saying, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a very elite tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. People respect me because I, 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 I was highly observant and highly pious. So I was not just, you know, culturally, I was spiritually, religiously into it. In regard to the law, he says, a Pharisee. I was part of a sect that was extremely well-respected, very pious um, and observant. As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church. I didn't just believe it and sit on the sidelines. I did something about it. I believed it so much that I went out and tried to snuff out people who, tried to, who were messing with my religion. As for righteousness, based on the law, he says, I was faultless. None of you guys could find anything wrong with any of my observances. All 613 Rules and requirements, I dotted every I and I crossed every T. I was absolutely faultless. I had the model resume, Paul is saying. And then he goes into verse 9 and he says, But whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, it's about my relationship with him. For, the, for whose sake I have lost all things, all that list that I just went through, I consider that garbage. The Greek word is skabala. There's, it, it, you know, there are various translations, but it can mean, it can mean you know, waste, rubbish, excrement, filth. I, I consider it absolutely worthless. It's absolutely nothing to me that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What he's saying is, I already, I already, I've been there, man. I've got the t-shirt. I've already lived the religious life. I've already done it better than you did it. I've done it more than you. And it means absolutely nothing to me because my resume is worthless, but my relationship is everything. 
My relationship is everything. Church, your faith is wrapped up in his faithfulness. Your value is tied to his value. Your worth is tied to his worth. And when you put your faith in him, those of you who are Christians, an exchange happened. What he did was he took upon himself all of the sin, all of the darkness, all of the guilt, all of the shame of your life. He took that on himself and he attached to you and imputed to you his perfection, his righteousness, his peace, and his joy. He gives that to you in exchange for your darkness on him. Um, Several years ago, um, a buddy of mine um, and one of my overseers, actually, Ian Noyes and his wife, Mindy, they had one boy, his name was Jacob, and Jacob was just, is just the pride and joy of Ian and Mindy, and they just absolutely adored this kid, and so whenever they would go, you know, Ian would go hiking, and and Jacob would be right there on his hip, or or camping, or kayaking, I mean, Jacob was just right there, I mean, this this family loved Jacob, and it looked for a while like Jacob was going to be the only child that they had, Um, and so they just poured out an immense amount of love and attention on this boy. But then God began to move in their hearts, and they began to consider the possibility of adopting, adopting uh, another child. And they began to look into it, um, and uh, as they started the process, it was very difficult for them to imagine loving another child, especially a child that wasn't born to them, in the same way or to the same, to the same extent or to the same degree that they loved Jacob because Jacob was just the apple of their eye. Um, then one day, after they had gone through months and months of, of, of um, paperwork, and uh, they were introduced to not one, but to two little children, a brother and a sister, and their names are Isaac and Ella. And Isaac and Ella's parents were unable to care for them. Um, they were malnourished. They had extremely severe uh, uh, compromised health um, they came out of extreme poverty, but when Ian and Mindy met these kids, they just absolutely knew that they were theirs, and they brought them home, and the most amazing thing happened. Even though Ella and Isaac were not their biological children, they began to care for them, sing to them, brush their hair, feed them, and before long, a, a love began to develop in their heart that was unlike anything they could have imagined before. And now their love for Isaac and Ella, though they're not their biological kids, they love them just as deeply, just as passionately, just as much as they love their biological child. Not because of anything that Ella and Isaac have done or did in their past, but because they have a relationship and Ella and Isaac are now theirs and they belong to them. It's, it's, a, it's a father and mother relationship. Um, that's what the Bible describes us. That's how the Bible describes us. You and I have become children of God, not because anything that we did, not because of any um, you know, great accolade or great accomplishment that we have, but because of what he did for us. And the Bible uses all sorts of metaphors to describe this transaction. It says that he adopted us, he bought us with a price, he redeemed us, 
He rescued us. He breathed life into us. He freed us from the chains of sin. He pulled us out of the miry clay. But one thing that all of the metaphors share is that they only touch on the relationship. They don't touch on the resume of those of us who have come into Christ. It's all about that relationship, not the resume. So how, how do we deepen this relationship in such a way that we can experience that same sort of impervious, persistent joy that Paul is describing? Um, I told you there were three, two major truths and then three basic principles, and I'm just going to um, walk you uh, quickly through these three principles that Paul teaches us in this chapter. In verse 13, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying the first thing you do is let go of the past. Let go of the past, whether it's your victories or whether it's your failures. If it's guilt from your past, shame from your past, sins from your past, habits from your past, whatever it is, he said, I'm letting that go, right? I'm forgetting those things that are behind, and I'm pressing forward. That's how I deepen my joy, deepen this relationship with Christ is that I don't let the things from my past stifle my going forward in my relationship with Christ. It's like when you enter into a new relationship, you know, when you, you know, you start a new relationship, sometimes you have to let go of old stuff from your past in order to develop this relationship. And that's what Paul is saying. Um, number, number two in verse 17, he says, The second thing, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, he's saying, follow the faithful. Let go of the past and then find somebody who is developing the same relationship and follow them. He says, follow me or or look at the models of those around you and follow them. Let me ask you, who are your heroes? Who are you striving to emulate? You know, show me your friends and I will show you your future. If you want a deep sense and an abiding sense of peace and joy in your life, then get into a life group and find some other people who are developing and strengthening their relationship with Christ. Right? Follow the faithful. And then number three, he says in the final piece here is set your sights on the savior and paul just closes out this chapter with a really beautiful appeal that we should focus our hearts and our minds on the things of god not on the things of this earth in verse 18 he says uh, sorry in verse 20 he says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ Set your sights on the Savior. Do not focus on and be preoccupied with the circumstances in which you, are, which you are currently experiencing. Do not focus on those, especially if they're negative and, and, and hard, you know, hard and, and harmful. I mean, it's okay to, to think about them. It's fine. But, but don't let them be your main focus. Place your trust. Place your heart. Place your your mind on the things above. Set your sight on the Savior. 
When I was, I used to have a motorcycle years ago before I got married, traded in for a family Volvo. Right, babe? That's right. Thank yes, you very thank much. You. <laughs> um, and one of the things that my dad would say, because he also had a motorcycle, he was like, the bike will follow your eyes. Wherever your eyes go, that's where you're eventually going to steer. So if you're going over a narrow bridge, don't, don't be looking out over the water. Because eventually you're going to veer off. If you're going around a sharp bend, don't look at the truck that's coming the other way. Look at the bend of the road where you want to go, right? That's what Paul's saying to us. He's like, there's plenty in this life to distract you. Tons of stuff in this life that can distract you and derail you and keep you from experiencing the joy that God has for you. But that's why he's saying don't rejoice in the earthly things. Don't rejoice in the circumstances. Don't rejoice in the world. Rejoice in the Lord. Put your trust in him. Don't rely on yourself. Jesus told a really great parable, and I'll close with this, about uh, two men who went to pray. And they were standing outside of of the temple, and one was a Pharisee, a very high-level, pious, religious guy. And the other was very, very low on the social pecking order. He was a tax collector, which in that day was just about as low as you could possibly get. Um, um, not much has changed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, um, no, but, but he, he, this guy was, was, was just uh, tax collectors in that day. They were just, you know, they were corrupt and they were, they were just not viewed well. So anyway, there's this tax collector and there's this religious leader. Um, and the religious leader says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not a bad guy. You know, I don't, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a sinner. You know, I tithe, I, you know, I do everything that I'm supposed to do. And, and I'm just thankful that I'm, that I'm so good. I'm so thankful that I'm just so righteous. Thanks for making me so awesome. I'm just so great, God. And the tax collector on the other side is beating his chest and he says, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, the tax collector went home justified that day. It was the tax collector that was in relationship with God because this guy's relying on his resume. This guy is seeking a relationship, right? This guy is telling you how good he is. This guy's saying, I need you. So let me encourage you today, all of us, put our hearts, put our minds, put our focus on the Lord. There's an old hymn, uh, and it goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And if you know it, it goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. You know that song? And the things of earth will grow strangely in the light of his glory and grace let me encourage you today whatever it is you're going through whatever it is you're struggling with whatever whatever is happening in your world take your eyes off of yourself for a little bit and take your eyes off your circumstance and just put them on the lord and if you're not a believer if you're still a skeptic and you're sort of on the fence and you're just peeking over the fence to see what this is all about I want to invite you to just, today when I pray, just say, Lord, I need you. 
I need you. That's all. Just, I need you, God. And open up the possibility that God and you can enter into a relationship in which he brings his joy and his peace and his salvation to you and transforms your life. And there's stuff you'll have to figure out, you know, intellectual hurdles that you may want to, you know, consider and chew on. And I invite you to do that. This is a safe place for you to do that. But I want to invite you today, if, if, you know, if you've not done that, open up your heart and do that today. And if you have done that and you've gotten off track and you started, you know, submitting your resume to everybody, just toss that in the fire and come back and remember that it's all about you, God. It's all about you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your peace. We thank you for the joy of living a life in you. And God, we ask for those that are are not yet in a relationship with you, we ask, God, that they would uh, pray today and just open their hearts to you and come to you and begin a relationship with you um, that will absolutely and radically transform their lives forever. And Father, for those of us who are Christians, we ask, God, that you remind us to not fall in that pervasive trap of trying to impress you and impress one another, but rather, Lord God, that we just open our hearts and and deepen our relationship with you, um, that we forget our past, that we put our faith in you, God, that we follow you, Lord, and that we focus on the Savior, God. That's all that we ask. Give us strength today. Fill our hearts with joy today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, 